This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a very special guest coming back on the podcast. He is an Undaunted Life, a man's podcast alum, and that is Stephen Pressfield. So you can hear our first interview with Stephen on episode 151 of this podcast. So if you're not familiar with him or if you didn't catch podcast 151, he's an author of historical fiction, nonfiction, and screenplays. His first book was The Legend of Bagger Vance, which was later turned into a movie that was directed by Robert Redford, starred Will Smith, Charlize Theron and Matt Damon. His second book, which is on our 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list, is Gates of Fire, which is about the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Also, he wrote The War of Art, Turning Pro, Do the Work, The Warrior Ethos, Tides of War, and really over a dozen more. But guys, as of today, he's got an extra one. Another book is being released. So guys, if you are listening to this podcast on time today, the latest novel called A Man at Arms has been released. Now guys, I just got to tell you, he sent me this book a few months ago, right? But I, I kind of timed it to where I would be finishing the book basically the day before or really close to the time of the interview. And that's what I did. I finished this before the day before. And it was an amazing book, an absolutely amazing book. And guys, you should take that, not with a grain of salt, but you should take that as an ironclad guarantee because I've told you a lot before that I don't read fiction. It's just really hard for me to keep the characters straight. It's hard for me to follow the narrative. I get distracted easily. So for whatever reason, reading nonfiction and kind of garnering the ideas and distilling them all down is way easier for me. So I might read one or two fiction books a year. And guys, if this is the only fiction book you read this year, it's a good one. It's definitely worth it. But we talk about that in this podcast. We also talk about the Warrior Archetype, which is a YouTube series that he put out. There were 50 little mini episodes. We dig into that. So I think you guys will really enjoy that. We even talk about his relationship with Jack Carr and kind of how, you know, that author is another author that he inspired and another artist that he inspired with his work. And then we've got something a little bit special after the end of the show today. And we're actually going to get into some spoilers in his book. And, you know, if you haven't read the book, I would not suggest that you do that. But guys, Stephen Pressfield is just such an amazing dude. He's so fun to talk to. He's very deep in terms of his thoughts. And there are a few times when you could tell, like he was trying to cut off his answer so that we could move the interview along. And I'm sitting there like, no, 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 please going, like, please keep going. Like this, this is great stuff. So he always gives great answers. He gives very thoughtful answers. He's incredibly generous with his time and I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Stephen Pressfield, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Kyle, it's great to be here on my second time around, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. That's right. I should have said welcome back to Undaunted Life <laughs> Man's podcast. You were the first return guest. You know, we've got some two-part really? interviews huh? coming up, but you are the first return guest, and for good reason, because you've got a new book coming out. Guys, if you were listening to this on time, this is the day his new novel is released. It's called A Man at Arms. It's a novel. Uh, it's just another one of your great novels. I actually just finished it yesterday, so I, I just want it to be really, really fresh. 
fresh. And another thing I really like to do with authors that come on the show to talk about their books is I always like to hear them give their synopsis of the book. Because, you know, I can I can read the synopsis from Amazon or from your website, but you get a little bit of passion and you get a little bit of that inkling of the creativity. So if you would give our, our readers a little bit of a primer as to what A Man at Arms is about. This is a book that I've been trying to write for about 13 years and have never been. The, the main character of A Man at Arms is uh, this the one man killing machine of the ancient world, Telamon of Arcadia, the solitary mercenary who is a recurring character, the only recurring character in any of my other stories. He appears in like three other books and for as a minor character. And for years, I've wanted to do a book that was entirely about him or mm-hmm. and his journey and what he's up against. He's sort of like the archetypal warrior pushed to the limit, like a samurai, like a Clint Eastwood man with no name type of guy. So I just was searching for years. I would just do sort of outline, 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 trying to come up with a story that that would actually work. And finally, like a couple of years ago, I had this idea of a character of a young girl, like a nine-year-old mute girl that you know about since you just read it yesterday, Kyle, mm-hmm. or finished it yesterday. And that to me was sort of the key that kind of opened the story that allowed me to kind of get into to Telemann's progression and where he was going to go, which I didn't really know before I kind of plunged into this. So for me, it's this is the completion of something that I've really wanted to do for a long time. And um, I'm proud of it and and excited to get it out there. So where did the idea for you, because again, I know that there are some authors that they'll fall in love with a certain character, but they'll just kind of leave them over there. Like where, where did the idea come from that Telemann needed his own journey, needed his own story? Where, where was that? I mean, I think it was sort of built into the character in the previous three books that he was in, mainly two mm-hmm. books. He was just a cameo in a third one, but uh, he's a guy, he's a warrior, but a thinker as well. I would even call him a philosopher. He has this whole philosophy about what what uh, the goddess that he worships is the goddess of strife. You know, he sort of, it, which is a very dark philosophy. And I mm-hmm. kind of felt like he's he is struggling to get beyond this. He's trying to get to the next level of manhood or whatever it is. And uh, I sort of wanted to, you know, creativity is a funny thing. Sometimes characters take over and do their own thing. And the only thing you can do as a writer is just sort of hang on for the ride. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I what I was hoping was going to happen with this book. And, and it did. So I just wanted to see where he was going to go, what the next stage was of his thinking. Well, I got to say, you know, you bring up how, you know, he worships the goddess of strife. And I got to be honest for me personally, I don't know what this says about me, but I'm, I'm more attracted to kind of the darker sides of different art forms. So even the other day, my wife and I were trying to find a movie to watch. And I looked through all the stuff I had saved on my playlist on, you know, Amazon Uh video or whatever. Uh And it's all, you know, murder mysteries, Uh you know, where there's, you know, some sort of horrible rape involved or some horrible drug deal. Like everything's like really, really dark. And so it's interesting when you read a book where the character is kind of working through that with an audience watching, but also with the other people watching. Do you feel like you, you kind of have a, you know, a bias towards kind of the dark side as well? 
I, I do. I think in many ways, my my own philosophy is dark cut with light. It's light, but okay. it's also very dark. And I'm like you. When I, if I have a playlist, it's full of these horrible, you know, yeah. uh, super dark movies. And the characters that I love are the, really the darkest characters, which is one of the reasons I love this guy, Telemann, because his, you know, his philosophy is is very dark until he evolves to the next level. Right. Well, one thing that I may have picked up and I, I might be reading something into it that's not there at the end of the, you know, the advanced copy that you sent me, which again, uh -huh. thank you so much for that. There's an acknowledgements page and just how some of your acknowledgements are worded. It makes it seem like this was a book that maybe your publishers or maybe people in your life weren't super excited about getting out there. Or maybe it was difficult. Now, the thing I'm I'm reading into it is that there might be some resistance because there are biblical themes and biblical characters and content uh, inside of the storyline. Am I reading something in there that's not I, there? Or I is think there... you are actually. Okay. Kyle. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised to hear that, you know, cause actually my, my two editors both fell head over heels in love with this book. And I actually sort of got in trouble with them because I kind of had to choose, you know, I had to, I had to go with, with one and not another. And, uh, um, they both really wanted it. And so, um, uh, yeah, so that, no, so no, there was no real reluctance at all. It was really the opposite, you know, great enthusiasm for it. Well, stop, uh, pretending and adding drama to your life. That isn't there. That'll be the last <laughs> time I do that, Stephen. But I got to say, even for me, just reading the synopsis of the book and reading, uh, when I started getting into it, that is one thing that kept me very excited and enthralled with the story was the time of, you know, the time in history that it was taking place and some of the historical figures. And I guess that leads to my next question, which is you make a lot of historical references to that time period, you know, as to where the story takes place, but you also, you're, you know, creating characters and creating different places for these characters to act out their lives. How do you effectively as an author weave historical truths into a story you know, without overwhelming the narrative? Ah, that's a great question. I mean, now the time period is like 20 years after the crucifixion. So mm -hmm. it's the first century AD, around 55 AD, 50 AD, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the Sinai Desert, kind of the wilderness of Sinai. And, um, you know, it's sort of a technique of historical fiction that you would take actual characters from history, Alexander the Great, Leonidas, whatever you want to take, and you would insert a fictional character as a kind of a, an intermediary into the story, kind of almost like a fly on the wall, almost like you're beaming this character back mm -hmm. into the past to kind of watch what's going on and to participate in what's going on. And I think not only is that legitimate, but I think it's, it's almost a key thing that you have to do to get in there. Not always, but sometimes. So um, in this case, the story is about a theme that I needed a character to embody that theme, you know, in, in touching base on the post-crucifixion world, when the Roman mm -hmm. Empire was in charge, when there was this new faith, this new religion that was starting to come up, and, and that was a big threat to the Roman Empire, and that they wanted to crush this thing before it could get going. And so that's where I sort of brought, you know, sort of combining my character, my one man killing machine character with this era was really uh, 
really kind of opened the door along with this little girl character to really getting into what I wanted to get into about, about that era. I don't want to give away too much, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I want to make sure that we kind of keep people's appetites whetted for this, but at the same time, I'm very excited about that, that time period because particularly a lot of modern Christians, they think when somebody responds to their Facebook post uh, where they post a scripture and they're uh-huh. like, oh, so you still believe in the spaghetti monster in the sky? Uh-huh. That they think that that is like some sort of trial and tribulation that they're having to go through. And it's like, and you don't get a lot into you know how Christians were treated you know in specifics, but I encourage people to read a lot about the first century church and what the Romans were able to do because they weren't trying to, you know, push this religion to the side. They were trying to stamp it out entirely. And so I like that you kind of have that as an underlying theme of the book. Yeah. Uh, it was a fascinating thing for me. Like there is that one speech that one of the Roman tribunes gives to our mm-hmm. character of Telamon where he says, the emperor's slumber is not disturbed by armies or anything else because he knows he can defeat those. But a new idea, a new faith, that scares them, you know. And in fact, in the real world, of course, that is what brought down the Roman Empire, you know. And Rome became the Vatican, became the center of this new faith, you know. Absolutely. There's one thing that I pulled out from your book that was in chapter seven. And I think this is a theme that our audience will love. And, and guys, there's this is almost, there's a lot of reasons to buy this book, but this is an under, underlying theme for a lot of guys that maybe have a father wound or have guys where, you know, fatherhood is incredibly important to them. So there's a, a character in the book named David. He's a young man in the story um, and he becomes an apprentice to Telamon, right? Uh, that's the mercenary, the man at arms. And as we learn from the story, David's father is not a very good or righteous man. You know, perhaps we would even categorize him as an evil man. So he's certainly not someone that David wants to model himself after. But this leads to a very interesting interplay between David and Telamon. And David, yeah, and I'll just kind of read it here. It says, you're my father now, the boy said. The man in arms only grunted. And so this is the boy, David, kind of like expressing to Telamon, you're, you're my father figure, you're my dad. And I want to, if you'll indulge me, I, this might be a little weird for you, but I want to read uh, about three quarters of the last page of chapter seven, because I think it is absolutely incredible. And this is the, one of the biggest things that I wanted to, to kind of get with you. So do you, will you indulge me a little bit as you I kind of read through you this bet. section? All right. David knew at once that he would follow this man. What he taught, David would learn. What he commanded, David would perform. He, the youth, would enroll himself in the academy of the highway in the school of conflict. Such secrets as the man in arms might impart, David knew, would have to be prized from him one lesson at a time, one action, one word. David did not care. Whatever the price, he would pay it. Why this one? David asked himself now as he trekked in the train of the solitary mercenary. Why him and not one of the thousands of pikemen and archers and cavalry riders, Jew and Gentile, whom David had encountered over his short but keenly observed span of years? David sensed something about this individual. He could not have articulated its essence, even in part, even to himself. Yet the boy felt in this man something deeper and more profound than simply strength or skill or even Andrea, manly virtue in the Greek sense. This man at arms had a religion too. It was not a faith of the lamp or of the blessed by and by. It was not of soldier's code or a code of honor. It was sterner and more solitary, a doctrine shorn of pity even for oneself, but which touched somehow, David sensed, 
upon the truth as immutable as death and as primal as creation. David resolved that he would give all he had and all he ever would have to acquire that which this man at arms possessed, this wisdom, this understanding, the knowledge of these mysteries. He would die to be and to become himself like this man. And so the reason why I bring that up is because every boy, in my humble opinion, needs two things. He needs a father and he needs a path. And in Telamon, David saw a father figure of sorts, maybe not a biological father figure, but a father figure and a path. Now, for me, that is something that defines the book for me. And we'll certainly get more into that maybe even later after the credits, which we'll, we'll talk more about later. But is the father-son dichotomy, is that father-son connection, was that a plan from the beginning to be a huge theme of this book? Because that right there, that just carried me through the entire rest of the book. That just gave me all kinds of excitement. You know, that just, again, that sort of, I really uh, give you a lot of credit, Kyle, for picking that out. I would say that's one of the central uh, themes of the book that, that you put your finger on. In fact, if I can quote another line there, mm -hmm. there's a, after the, when um, David says to Telamon, you're my father now, Telamon responds to that after a little while. He won't say anything for a little while, but then he says mm -hmm. to him, um, I'm, I, you have shown spirit, so I will, I will let you accompany me but I'm not your father and I'm not your brother and I'm not your friend. And he says, mm -hmm. what you can, what you can learn from me by watching, I, I'm happy to let you learn. And if you die, as we're on our little adventure here, I'll bury your bones. That's, that's what I'll do for you, but I'm not your father. Mm -hmm. And I, and that, that to me was sort of the essence of that character. And of course, not to give too much away, but in the end of the story, the roles reverse in a way. And, and uh, it's Telamon who, who learns from David, you know, but very, very different. It's funny, when I started the story, writing it, I didn't have this character of David. I didn't have this young apprentice. I just had the warrior. And somehow, I just kind of felt the need for this young boy. I felt the need for somebody to, to look up to Telamon and that Telamon could kind of react against, and that he could also teach as he went along. And as you know, his style of teaching is, he never <laughs> practically says a word. He just does right. things and lets mm -hmm. David watch him. But yeah, I think absolutely, you, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, with a, the, a father, a mentor, and a path. And that's what Telamon provides for this young boy, David. And guys, we're going to move on to some other subjects, but again, I could not recommend A Man at Arms more highly. And again, this is coming from a guy, and I talk about this a lot, Stephen. I don't really enjoy fiction that much. I basically will read one or two fiction books a year and maybe 20 or 25 nonfiction books. So I could not recommend this more highly, and I'm glad I took it down this early in the year. But I do <laughs> want to transition to the warrior archetype. So that okay. is your YouTube series that you released and you released 50 kind of mini episodes, typically between five and 10 minutes. And this was really going into the subject matter of the warrior archetype. And so last time on the last podcast, you'll go and listen because you already explained, you know, why you want to get into that. But there were a few things from a few of your episodes I wanted to ask you about. And the first one is from episode six, and that's called Come and Take Them. Okay, so this was the war where the 300 Spartans were going against the Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae. And you said that that battle, right, that war was the supreme example of the warrior ethos and the warrior archetype. 
And, you know, some of the reasons you gave is that it was a, it was a good war, a righteous war. There were crazy odds stacked against the Spartans um, and the stakes, you know, Western civilization was at stake, but you say the main reason that it's kind of the supreme example is because the Spartans knew they were going to die. So, so why do you think that that makes it the supreme example of the warrior ethos and the warrior archetype? Well, the sort of the, I would say the supreme expression of warrior honor, warrior valor is to give your life for some, for others, for a cause that's greater than yourself, you know? And like, there's a famous story that of some Spartan King where they asked him, what was the supreme warrior virtue from which all others flowed? And he answered contempt for death, which I think is absolutely, he was absolutely right. And if if you think about any other uh, great battles that you can think about, the warriors on, on, on one side go in either thinking that they can win, right? There's going to be a happy outcome. They're going to win or that they'll survive. Maybe they'll lose, but they'll survive. But almost never do, is there a battle where the people go into it. The Alamo is another kind of example where the people on one side say, we're not walking away from this. This you know, we're there. This is a suicide mission, and we all know it, including particularly in this case where your own king is going there with you, and he's he knows that he's going to die. So that, in many ways, that is, to draw an analogy, it's like Jesus on the cross. I don't mean to get too spiritual here or anything mm-hmm. like that, but it is in a communal, uh, collective level, 300 people together, 300 men together, knowing that they're going to die and and um, and going through with it. Nobody ran away. Nobody copped out. You know, everybody, everybody went through it. And in fact, they saw it as a supreme act of, of sacrifice in in the highest in the highest way. Um, I don't know if they believed in heaven or anything like that, but they mm-hmm. certainly felt that they would be remembered forever and that this was a great, great thing they were doing. And of course, it was. So that's to me what what separates that particular battle from, you know, anything else that, that I can think of. Now, one thing, just as a short follow to that, and then we'll, we'll get into another episode. So obviously everyone knows because of your writings and just because of history that the Spartans were betrayed and that, you know, basically there was a goat path that was allowed them to get flanked. And then they were being fought by both sides. And that was basically curtains for the Spartans. But do you think that they're, they maybe thought that they could withstand the Persian army and the immortals and, and all of that, if they had never been betrayed, if the goat path had never been discovered, do you think there was any of that? Or was it from the beginning? Hey, they, they knew that it was only a matter of time. They just thought they would probably hold out a little bit longer. I, I think they absolutely knew. And the reason why I say that is the when Leonidas, King Leonidas, selected the th- specific 300 warriors to go, he selected them all as fathers of living sons. Mm. So that's and another thing was that and that the Greeks and particularly the Spartans really believed in was prophecies and oracles. And there was a very famous oracle that Sparta would survive, but would lose a king. And in this particular case, so Leonidas absolutely knew that. And I also think that that in a way. He knew the battle was a holding action. He knew there was no way to hold for very long, you know, 4000 against, you know, millions or whatever. 
and that the real uh, victory, if it came at all, would be produced later on in subsequent battles when the other Greek cities, Athens and Corinth and Argos and all them, would rally and put together, you know, enough of an army or an army and a navy as it worked out that they could hold off the Persians. So I think that he really want, he wanted the example of Spartan courage. In a way, they, they wanted to die because to inspire their other, their fellow countrymen to, to live up to their. And there's also a great moment in the, in the true story of Thermopylae, not just what I wrote in Gates of Fire, but mm-hmm. um, that when the Spartans and their allies, they had about 4,000 allies from the other Greek cities, when they knew they were going to be flanked by the goat path, they had like a couple of hours before the actual Persian immortals got behind them. So they could have fled. And in fact, Leonidas mm-hmm. released the allies. He said, you guys go home, take the path, get out of here, live to fight another day. But the Spartans, we're going to stay here. We're going to die. And the other footnote to this, not to go on and on and on. Kyle, oh, this is I, great. Go. Was that this to me was almost the greatest thing of all of, the, of that moment was there was another city called Thespiae, and there was a small unit that joined, that was there with the Spartans. And to a man, they said, we're going to stay too. We're not going to go. And the other thing is what they called the servants of the battle train, meaning the battle squires who would carry the armor. Because a a warrior in those days had heavy armor. He didn't go by himself into battle. He had a, you know, a, a, a squire with him. And mm-hmm. me, they, Leonidas freed them. They were basically, you know, serfs or slaves. He freed them and let them go. But a, a, a whole bunch of them said, no, we're not going to go. We're going to stay here and die too. And these were people with families and children, wives and children. And, you know, they didn't have to, they weren't going to get any glory. Their names were not going to be remembered, but they chose to stay too. And it, out of loyalty to their brothers, to their brothers in arms. So, that was to me was the, even a more supreme example of courage. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, to fast forward a little bit to episode nine of the series okay. of fifty, you have something called "Why Study the Warrior Archetype," and so the claim you make in that is that we should study the warrior archetype because of the war within, basically the war between our own ears, right? The war in our heads. Yeah. So, can you elucidate that a little further for our audience? Um, I think well. Uh... As a writer, let's say, me being a writer or an artist or whatever it is, what, or, or I have to fight a battle in my own head every day against myself, against my tendency to take the easy way out, to procrastinate, to give in to self-doubt, to become arrogant, to become lazy, to become complacent, all of those things that we, we do. And if you want to expand it farther into being a father or something like that, you know that there are all of the forces in your head that that conspire to make you favor your own ego or your own needs over your children's or over the future, over your family, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you fight those, those, those negative tendencies that we all have? And to me, that inner war, we need to be warriors in that inner war. And the same virtues that, that are embodied in the warrior archetype, virtues of courage, patience, selflessness, love for our brothers, the willing embracing of adversity, those virtues that a warrior would use to fight 
external enemies that the Spartans would use to fight the Persians or any, anybody else you want to use as an example, that we use those to fight the inner war inside our own selves against the, the, uh, the what do you call it, the lower angels of ourselves, not the better angels, mm-hmm. not our nobler self, mm-hmm. but our baser self that is constantly every day trying to drag us down. So that's what I meant by the inner war. And that's why I think we we do need to study the warrior archetype. Well, and that's what you've talked about in, you know, the war of art and, and different things like that. You you have those issues. And for a lot of guys, they can become crippling. And most guys don't actually, they kind of give short shrift to even figuring out where those things come from. And so from my worldview and from the worldview of a lot of our listeners, we think those come from dark forces. We think those come from satanic forces. And, you know, we always talk about putting the thoughts in your head through a filter. And so if you have kind of the the God and Satan, you know, ideal and, and worldview, uh-huh. it's like, would God be telling me this? that I'm a horrible father, that I suck at everything, I should probably just die? Or is that probably something that Satan would whisper? And so, and a lot of times it's not, you know, like someone's yelling at you with a bullhorn. It's just a whisper. It's just a little glimmer of a thought in the back of your brain that you heard. And so again, I think that that's a really good way. And guys, we'll put episode nine of the Warrior Archetype in the show notes so you can check that out because I think that would be helpful for you regardless of your worldview. But the last one I want to talk about is actually the the ultimate episode, the last episode of your series, and that's episode 50, and it's called The Warrior Going Forward. And so you said in that episode that the warrior archetype needs to have a moral dimension. It needs a moral dimension. And if not, the warrior archetype could could lead to evil, right? And you talked about different leaders and the things that they did, conquests and massacres and deep depopulating regions and enslaving people and just all the horrible things that come along with that, that, you know, we should all know about because we should all be readers of history. So from your perspective, is it just any morality that will do? Is it a specific morality? Is it the morality of the times? Because in the world that we live in in 2021, it is unrecognizable to the morality that we thought we had as a culture, even four or five years ago. Yeah, what, what would, yeah. How would you answer that? Um, well, what I said in that episode, as you know, Kyle, is that, uh, I think that there are archetypes beyond the warrior archetype as we mature, that the warrior archetype usually kicks in maybe from the age 14, 13, 14 through maybe 20, when we're athletes, when we play football, when we jump out of airplanes, when we, you know, scuba, we do crazy shit, you know, or when we're actually literally warriors, you know, in the, in the military. Mm -hmm. But beyond that are the, are other archetypes like the mentor, the father, the artificer, the teacher, uh, the king, the sage, and the mystic as, as we evolve. When I say the sage, I mean somebody like Obi-Wan Kenobi or Gandalf mm-hmm. or something like that. And I think that this is just my own theory on this, Kyle, and I may be wrong, but like when I'm asking myself, you know, because the as you were saying, the warrior archetype in and of itself does not really have a moral dimension. It's basically an us versus them. You know, they're the bad guys. We're going to kick their ass, right? But the soldier can become the stormtrooper, you know, and the commander can become the despot and the tyrant. So if there's no moral dimension. So I've been asking myself, where does this come from? Sorry to be long-winded here. No, this is good. As we evolve, as we mature, and as we go to the higher archetypes, one of the one of the things that happens is our our uh, view of the world expands and becomes more inclusive. 
And we start to think of the people that, that we might have considered the enemy before, um, the, the Taliban or the, you know, anybody you want to think of. We start to, to, instead of seeing them as the other with a capital O, we start to be able to see them as human beings, exactly like us. And we say, they're fathers, they love their children, they have their own, they, they would love their own freedom. They have their own conception of what is right and wrong. Many of them are tremendously honorable. We would be happy and proud to have them fighting on our side if we could, or we could be friends with them if we got to know them. And that aspect of inclusion, of inclusiveness, hopefully will ex- expand even further, not just to physical enemies, but to the environment, to the planet itself. And we start to say, we have to be stewards of this planet. And we also go beyond that to future generations where we start to say, you know, we really care about our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, or even if they're not our children, just the future um, human beings that are going to be on this planet. And as we become more inclusive in our mindset, then it becomes much, much harder to harm other people. We can't look at another person and say, that's a subhuman, that's a, you know, an evil person. It's okay for me to do anything to them. You know, a prisoner that might be in our, at our mercy. And uh, it's very tempting when you're in the pure warrior archetype to beat the crap out of that person or whatever. But once mm-hmm. you start to see them as another full human being, then your whole attitude changes. And I think a moral dimension enters the equation. And, and that moral dimension tempers the, the, the potential brutishness of the warrior archetype. That's what I was trying to say. No, that's great. And just so you know, every time you go off, you say a bunch of cool stuff. So <laughs> feel free, feel free to go off and say that. And one, just to maybe even put a finer point on that. I think everyone would agree with that. Whenever you play some moral dimension, you look at people differently. You know, in the Christian worldview, you look at the Imago Dei, that we were all created in the image of God. When you're grounding something in morality, and I I do want to kind of put a finer point on it, what morality? Because morality is incredible. We kind of live in this postmodern, post-truth world. What's true for you isn't true for me. Because the people you're fighting on the other side, they may recognize that you're a human as well, but you're an infidel or you're, you know, you're a murderer, you're the great devil or something like that. So what, what specific morality, like where do we lean to? Is there, is there something that we can glean? Well, one of the things that, I mean, it sort of comes back to the golden rule of, you know, treat, you know, act towards others as you would have them act toward you. But if you want to look at it in a, in a, say a Hindu tradition or a Buddhist tradition, which I think is a parallel thing, the whole idea of karma as I understand it, is that we are all one, all of us. It's, a, it's an illusion that you are a separate individual from me and I'm a separate individual from you. And when I violate that law that we are all one, when I hurt you because I think it doesn't hurt me, even if it's with a word or if it's something physical, that is a debt that I incur, a karmic debt that I've got to, you know, it's what goes around, comes around, it comes back together. So I I think the ultimate morality, you know, let me, let me go back to the Spartans for a minute, or I'll even Mm -hmm. go back to, to Jesus. They, I'm a believer that uh, life exists on two levels, at least two levels. There's a material plane that we're on now, 
and then there's a higher plane that we're that that you might say angels live on or the gods live on or whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. And on this lower plane where we live, there are certain laws that we take as real. And one of those laws is that death is real. When you die, you're dead, right? It's over. Another thing that we that we accept on this plane is that each individual is different from every other. I'm separate from you. You're separate from me. I can harm you and it won't have any effect on me. The other element on this plane that we live on, the material plane, in my opinion, is just my own theory, is that the predominant emotion is fear. Because we know we can die, because we know we have a body, because we know we can be hurt, we are protective of, of, of ourselves and we're against we're always trying to deal with the idea of death. Like the reason that uh, people try to quote unquote leave a mark in, in their achieve something is because something that will outlive death. The reason why, or a big part of the reason why people have families and children is to extend their own, you know, uh, their DNA or whatever that I may die, but my sons and daughters will live on so on and so forth. That's kind of the material plane. Now on the higher plane, in my opinion, there are different laws. And one of those laws is that death is not real. You know, the gods are immortal. Death is an illusion, as they say in many, many scriptures, right? The soul is immortal. The body may die, but the soul continues on. Another thing that they say, or that I believe on the higher dimension, is that we are I'm not separate from you, and you're not separate from me, that we are all one and that we know that on, on that plane. This is, comes back to the idea of karma. And the third thing that is on the higher plane, in my opinion, is that the predominant emotion is not fear, but love. And that we're all bound together by love and that God or whoever you wanted to call it, the great force, whatever it is, is is a, a binding force of love. So that I believe further that when we on this plane see somebody or some group acting according to the laws of the higher plane, it moves us to tears and we honor them with the highest honors. And I think that's why the Spartans at Thermopylae are live, that story lives forever. And is, it still is emotional because they, they acted, first of all, as if death was not real, right? They willingly died. They mm-hmm. acted as if the predominant emotion or that there was no distinction between one of them and another. You know, they were all one. And they acted not out of fear, but out of love, out of love for their brothers and love for their countrymen. So to get all all this back down to what I'm trying to say, I think that the morality that we're looking for is the morality of that higher plane, the morality that we are all one. And I mean, if we believe that, how would would the world be completely different, you know, and and all of the whole tribalism and all that stuff that we're going through now, partisanship and everything, would just vaporize, would just go away. In fact, you could say that the state of the United States right now with the tribalism is as far away from the high plane as it could possibly be. We're like, we're like in the deepest depths of the, of of what's, what's bad. We're at each other's throats where there's no love. It's all based on fear, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, again, that's another long answer, Kyle. Well, Stephen, there's no love, and hey, we're we're definitely not going to send this down a political point. But you're right. I mean, this is as far from what the founders would have wanted for a people 
Um, they wanted to allow for kind of a disputatious attitude, but they didn't want to allow for this level of tribalism because tribalism is what can kill something from the inside. Like that's, those are the termites eating, eating, you know, the, the, the foundation of your house that's eating all the scaffolding. And so to, to move away from politics before we get into that and get ourselves <laughs> in trouble, I want to talk about a lighter thing and that's your friendship with Jack Carr. And so Jack uh-huh. Carr, you know, retired Navy SEAL author, uh, best-selling author of the terminal list, true believer, savage son, and his forthcoming book, the devil's hand and his books and really his profile exploded after he appeared on the Joe Rogan experience. And Joe Rogan basically gave him an endorsement of his books and his writing. And he appeared on our uh, podcast on episode 168. So if you're curious, go back and listen to that. It was a wonderful interview. But the cool thing about Jack Carr is he gives a lot of credit for him being a successful author today to you. And, you know, to, to your writings and to your encouragement, how do you feel about that? Oh, I think it's a great honor. It's a great, a a great um, source of friendship, you know, and I'm sort of, I feel kind of modestly about that because Jack's brought all the talent and all the, you know, the determination in the world. He brought that himself to everything, you know, but so I'm very happy of anything that I wrote. I'm not even sure what exactly Jack means. Maybe it's the war of art and resistance and the that sort of idea like that. But uh, yeah, it's a great honor. I really, uh, I love the guy. I admire him. He's a, he's a tremendous talent and a, and a wonderful guy, a family man, the whole, everything down the line. And um, so, yeah, any, uh, if I'm, if I helped him in any way, I'm just honored to do that. Well, to be honest, Stephen, obviously you've given a lot of authors and, and writers and artists just in general, motivation and inspiration and all these other positive things. So I guess a great thing for, for me to ask, and I think for our audience to, to learn is who or what motivates and inspires you as an artist, as a writer, as an author? Um, that's a great question. I think I'm, I'm a believer that uh, we all have a destiny. We all have a call and we all have a kind of an authentic being that we are. And, you know, for some it's to be a mother for other, it's it's to be to care for the uh, the the vulnerable and the weak. For others, it's to invent something like an iPhone or something like that, or to be a, to be a warrior or something like that. And for me, I, I'm a writer, and it took me years and years to 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 be able to say that to myself and believe it. But um, I I sort of stumbled onto that path, and. Uh, I tried many times to take other paths that were easier. I said, you're crazy to keep trying to follow this dream um, because there's no success happening. But I just uh, I just couldn't do anything else. I, if I did anything else, I was just too depressed. to. So um, it's, it's a mystery to answer the question, Kyle. I'm not even sure why. I just that was uh, my calling when I came into this world. And and uh, that's what I what makes me happy. Well, it may be a mystery now, but you have to promise us something. If you ever figure out the reason, you have to come back on here and talk about it, even if that's the only thing we talk about. Is that fair? Okay, that's fair. All right. Now, guys, we're going to do something a little bit special here. So this is going to be a special thing just for those of you that have read A Man at Arms. Okay, so we're not going to do our, our normal outro. I'm going to kind of transition this and I'm going to do our, our outro that we we do with, you know, the, the links and everything. And hey, this is how you can follow us. But then after the music cuts out from my normal outro, 
We're going to come back. And Stephen has agreed to answer some very, very specific questions about it, man in arms. But here is your massive, obvious blinking neon sign. Major spoiler alerts ahead. So if you just keep the track running after the music goes out and then you plan to read this later, you're going to be woefully disappointed. It's going to be a bad, bad thing for you. So we're going to go ahead and make that transition now. So Stephen, we appreciate you hanging around. All right. All right, guys, we are going to do our normal outro for those of you that have not read A Man at Arms, but after the post music and all that kind of stuff, we're going to get right back into the interview. Before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, at Undaunted Life, our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast. It helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today, I've got these links for you. I've got the link to the Stephen Pressfield website. So anything that you want to know about him or ordering his books or anything, you can get that there. I also have a link to the Amazon page where you can order a man at arms, a novel by Stephen Pressfield. And guys, I know Amazon's kind of doing some weird stuff now with like taking books off and not selling books anymore. So my encouragement to you would be support local businesses as much as you can. But I will say Amazon is just kind of a good, easy place where you can read the description of the book. But I would always suggest that you buy local, support those local bookstores. Also, I've got the link to Stephen Pressfield's YouTube channel. And then I've got the links to those specific Warrior Archetype episodes, episodes six, nine, and 50. And guys, like I told you, these are all quick. These are very, very quick videos. And so they're five to 10 minutes long, typically. So you could just watch one a day for 50 days while you're on the can or while you're walking the dog or something like that. They're really, really good things to check out. And the other thing I would let you know is that pay attention to our social media. We've got some very important things coming up. We're going to do some giveaways. We've got some cool stuff going on. So if you're not following us on Instagram, that is going to be the best place for you to interact with us. Please follow us on Instagram and we will go from there. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, or iHeartRadio, and refer your friends to listen and share on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one in a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2021, so if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, at your church, just hit me up, info at undaunted.life. The email is info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. All right, Stephen, you up for some specific questions about a man in arms? I'm ready. All right. So just a few here. So at what point, and again, major spoiler alert, major, major spoiler alert for anybody that (laughs) did not listen to me the first time. Okay. That's your last spoiler alert. At what point in the writing process did you know or decide that David, the apprentice was going to die and in a somewhat 
the somewhat sacrificial way that he did? Ah, that's a that's a great question. And I have a wonderful editor and my dear friend, Sean Coyne, who has been my editor since Gates of Fire. And I always have him, uh, you know, he goes over everything and advises me, et cetera, et cetera. And in my original draft, I had David live. And Sean said, no, 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 no. He's got to mm. die. He's got to die. And I kind of resisted. I said, no, why? Why do he have to die? I really love this kid. You know, I don't want to. But you know, in thinking about it, he was right. And in thinking about what, uh, why that sort of is in stories is when one character sometimes dies, what happens is in some metaphysical way, they're reborn in another character or the death that, that they, that, uh, that, uh, for instance, after that, since we're doing spoiler alerts, a big part of the final uh, pages of A Man at Arms is Telamon carrying David's body mm-hmm. for miles, you know, to give it a, a, a decent burial, even though, and if you remember what we were talking about earlier on the show, where Telamon said, I'm not your father, I'm not your brother, mm-hmm. you know, and so, so David's sacrifice sort of was the final um, soul energy that went into Telamon that pushed him to the to his last bit of change, where he really let love. We were talking about love on the show earlier here on the podcast, so I think that's the reason. And if I if you think about, like you remember the movie Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's movie, yeah, yep. with uh, you remember the Morgan Freeman character not only gets killed. But he gets, you know, like humiliated and they put him up a, in a coffin, you know, with a sign around his standing upright in a coffin on the main street of town. And I think you would say, I mean, when that character died in that movie, I thought, oh, no, he's the best character. I love the guy, you know. But you could see that his death changed the character of Clint Eastwood, you know, mm-hmm. and really hardened him and sort of brought him back to, you know, the that sort of ultimate you know, justice bringer that he was in the end. So that's why David had to die. I still feel a little bad about it, but I, I think it was the right thing to do. Well, the, the funny thing about that is I feel like you kind of swerved me as a reader because again, I don't read a lot of fiction. I think this thing is going to happen in the movie and it's definitely not what happens. But everything in my brain was pointing to the fact that Telamon was surely going to die and perhaps in some sacrificial way, or it would have to be a sacrificial way for Ruth and or for David. So why did you choose to let Telamon live? Or why did you and your your team kind of say, okay, David, get out of here. You're dying. You know, you're going to get gut stuck and that's it. But then uh, Telamon got to live. Ah, it's funny. I, I never thought about killing Telamon. Mm-hmm. I felt like he has got to go on. He's got to go on to whatever the next evolution is. And I know that I'm going to have to write that book and I'm terrified of writing because I have no clue where he's going to go. But I, I didn't, I didn't think, I think the ultimate moment for Telamon will be when he does die. That's kind of coming, but I didn't think he was quite there yet. You know, that he still mm-hmm. had more, more to learn. And, and I liked very much the idea of him going off that you were talking about the path before Kyle going, mm-hmm. continuing down the path, but now with Ruth, which was, again, from the start of the book, a radical change. You know, you would never have thought of that at the start of the book. So, right. I, yeah, it never occurred to me to kill him off at, at all. Maybe come okay. close, maybe come very close, right. but not quite. 
Yeah, it felt close. It felt like there was kind yeah. of that slow deterioration, yeah. and then he got the you know the little potion from the witch, and then that yeah. he was gonna after he had fought like three men that it was gonna be bad for him after that. But you know, Ruth, the character, the the young girl, she is a mute until essentially the climax of the entire book, and it's like it gave me goosebumps because you just assume this girl's a mute. She's a mute. We've been told the for two hundred and eighty pages that she's a mute. Okay, why the choice? to keep Ruth a mute until the climax or the end of the book. Was it just for that tremendous? Cause I feel like you had a great climax anyway, but then you threw the fact that Ruth talked on the end. It was like, what she can talk <laughs> like she, she just held her tongue through all of this. So, so why do that? Um, you know, I was afraid that readers might uh, um, suspect that that was coming. I wanted it to be a complete surprise, you know. Well, Steve, I, I'm remember I'm an idiot. I don't read things very well, and it's I have to read slowly, and I didn't see it coming, honestly. And but yeah, so that that was what I was hoping. I was hoping that when she opened her mouth, that it would blow everybody's mind, you know, and particularly with what she was going to say. She wasn't just saying anything random. She was saying, you know, the words of the Apostle Paul, which are incredible. Right. I, and I was really afraid that that they too would sort of make my writing look like shit, you know, but uh, <laughs> by comparison, but, um, but I really wanted her to, the fact that she was able to bite her tongue through the whole mm -hmm. book. Cause you knew that she, at the end, you realized she could talk from day one. That was the whole sort of um, shows was proof to me that she was the supreme warrior. Not even Telamon could have done that because she had so many moments when it, it must have been bursting out of her to just say right. something, you know? She was but, so under but, control. But she know? couldn't do that because she was true to her mission. You know, it, once she did that, the, the mission was blown, you know? So um, that was, uh, yeah, I, I intended that from the start, that she would uh, uh, hold her tongue all the way through till the very end. Well, I think it also speaks to, again, coming from a Christian worldview that I hold to, to the transformational value and power of scripture, because we live in a culture where I've got the YouVersion Bible app on my phone. I've got the Bible in every language right here on my phone. And yet I don't find enough time to read the Bible. I have five or six Bibles on my bookshelf over here in the other room. We're surrounded by scripture, but at this time, there was obviously there was none of that. And so for somebody to be able to speak the words of the apostle Paul, that didn't just give goosebumps to me, the reader, like if you were to drop down into the world that you created, the, the amount of shock and awe and beauty and power and emotion of that moment had to be just completely overwhelming. And we lose that here in our modern 21st century context, because scripture is just a thing. People just talk about the Bible, even though they don't uh, read it. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, but of course, uh, but the, the proof that these words work is that they did work in this context of the story. It took like, you know, 300 pages to build up to that. But when they kind of come out, those words of the apostle Paul, they really hit you right in the face, you know, because they're so beautiful. And so, sure, I'll tell you where that came from, Kyle, for me, because I'm not a particularly religious person. I'm not a particular Bible reader or anything like that. But my niece got married a few years ago, and she asked me to be the officiant at, this, at the ceremony. Mm -hmm. Actually, her dad, my brother, married her 
earlier in a secret kind of ceremony and I was going to be the one that did it in public. Okay. And so I went to the Book of Common Prayer. I had to put together, you know, what am I going to say? And all, all of the things that sort of grabbed me were from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You know, we see now through a glass darkly, but then face to face and, you know, love suffereth all things, believeth all things, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so that was kind of in my brain somewhat, you know, like I say, creativity is a strange thing. I'm sure that went into the computer, the mental computer, and and came out a few years later. I just thought those those words are so such poetry. They're so powerful. You can see how those, I mean, more than the the gospels in a way, those words are are kind of central to um, this new religion that uh, did overthrow Rome. And when you consider who Paul was as a person and who yeah. he was prior to his conversion, yeah. that that carries with it because. When you talk to somebody, I've talked to a lot of people because I, I am an evangelical. I talk to them about what they believe and, and kind of, you know, the direction they're heading with their life and kind of what is the ultimate destination for those people. And, you know, a lot of these people, they're like, oh, I've, I've done too many bad things. You know, I've I've cheated on my taxes and I've cheated on my spouse. And I've done all these things. And I was like, so interesting. Have you murdered somebody? Did you like go and have the support of the government to go and eradicate an entire group of people? No. Okay. Well, Jesus died for, for that person too. So I think his, his blood is sufficient enough to cover yours. But again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sermonize here because I've got one question left for you before uh, we got to let you go. And you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier. And I was just going to ask you, will we see another book detailing what happens next for Telamon and Ruth? And I guess that is the question, because you kind of said you you want to keep this kind of transformation of Telamon from the inside out going. But is Ruth going to be tagging along in this potential future novel, which should come soon? I mean, I don't I don't know, because things it's so strange. You, don't, you wait for the story, but I certainly think she would be very much in there, if not the dominant character in there. In fact, she probably will be the dominant character in there. But I, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the muse to inspire me. I'm not sure what, what that will be, but definitely he's, he's got to go on farther and, and she's got to be a central character in it. Well, I'm very much looking forward to that. And I know our listeners are as well, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, I just one while we're giving spoilers away, uh, the reason that I picked the name Ruth for the character okay. is from that which is quoted, the sorceress says it in the book, the, which to me has always been one of the most moving passages. You know, I, I'm a King James Bible guy. Mm -hmm. um, when, you know, when Ruth says to Naomi, um, entreat me not to leave thee or to refrain from following after thee for whither thou goest, I will go et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, to me, that's what we were talking before, what I was saying before about us being all one on the higher dimension, that the Spartans believe that in Jesus and et cetera, et cetera. That expression of Ruth to Naomi that, you know, I'm with you. I am not going to leave you ever, you know, um, if aught but death part thee and me. So that was what I, I wanted the character of Ruth to be bound both to the character of Michael, her, you know, erstwhile father, and to Telamon, mm -hmm. and that that would be the char her single characteristic, most, most dominant characteristic was the bond that she would create with these two men, and that nothing was going to break that bond. 
And I think that's in many ways the most powerful thing in the world, father to child, whatever you want to call it, husband to wife. Um, it's the most powerful thing. And that's what gave her her power, in my opinion. Excellent. Well, that is a tremendous little tidbit, especially for those of you that read the book. <laughs> but again, we really appreciate you coming back on, Stephen Pressfield. Thanks for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thanks, Kyle. And I got to say to you, I really, uh, nobody has asked me the questions that you're asking me. And they're really terrific. They really are going straight to the heart of everything. So I take my hat off to you. Whatever you're doing, you're keep doing it. You're doing great. All right. We'll call it the muse at this point, or maybe God. <laughs> Whatever. All right, Stephen. Thanks okay. so much. Th thanks, Kyle.